My name is Paul Riley, also known as Political Paul, and this is The Riley Rant, a weekly podcast where we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. Let's rant. Thank you for tuning in to the third official episode of The Riley Rant. As a reminder, we are now on iTunes. So if you have the podcast app on your iPhone, please click on that, search for The Riley Rant, and hit subscribe. Additionally, you can find us on Facebook. Simply type in the search bar, The Riley Rant. Our page should pop up, and you can easily click that follow button. And most importantly, you can always visit www.therileyrant.com to get all up-to-date information on blog posts that have been written and all episodes that have been recorded. So I hope that you will continue to leverage these different forms of communication to be in the know about all future content related to the Riley Rant. And I would encourage you at the end of this episode to spend 30 seconds either subscribing to the podcast officially on iTunes, following the page on Facebook, maybe placing a comment or a thought under one of our blog posts or episodes, or sending in some feedback or interest in joining the show. So if you could spend 30 seconds doing one, two, or all of those things, it would be extremely helpful as it helps me to you know determine whether or not I'm producing content that's relevant to the listeners and also so that I can take the feedback to improve this experience and improve this podcast. So please, if you get a moment at the end of the show, please do one or all of those things. If you've been following us for the last three weeks, you know that we discuss all things political, professional, and personal. And we started week one with the personal where I gave you a New Year's resolution that I hope that you will add to your list for 2017 and for many years to come. In week two, we focused on the professional landscape where I gave you some of the best career advice I've ever received, focused on how we think about our work and how we think about the idea of passion. And if you haven't done so already, please check out those episodes. You can find them uh, under the podcast section on the website or on SoundCloud or iTunes. But today I want to focus on the political. So much has happened this past weekend with the inauguration of Donald Trump on Friday, with the Women's March on Washington and many cities around the country on Saturday. And so today, as I think about this past weekend, as I think about the 2016 election, I think now it's only right, it's only fitting that we conduct an autopsy report on the 2016 election and as we cover a political rant for this week. So with every rant, you know that I love to start with a quote to help guide or drive our discussion. And today's quote actually is in the form of a tweet, and it reads as follows. I'm here today to honor our democracy and its enduring values. I will never stop believing in our country and its future. This tweet was sent out by Hillary Clinton en route to the inauguration on January 20th. And the tweet is so fascinating because in it, she's basically justifying and explaining why she's attending the inauguration. Now, if you look back three months ago, people would probably laugh at you if you told them that Hillary Clinton will be writing a tweet justifying her attendance at the inauguration because many people thought that of course you know Hillary Clinton's going to be at the inauguration she's the one who's going to 
carry on the Obama legacy. She's the one who's going to be sworn as the 45th president of the United States. So she definitely has to be at the inauguration. There's no need to justify her being there because she has to to fulfill her constitutional duty uh, uh, as president and being sworn in at noon. And so it's wild to imagine that on this day, on June, January 22nd, we're now looking at a Trump presidency. We're now looking at a Republican-controlled Congress, and we're looking at a Hillary Clinton who is tweeting from the outside looking in um, on why she's at the inauguration. And I thought that all of these developments warrant further interrogation, and we have to get to the bottom of why this uh, played out the way that it did, where the warning signs were, and what we can take from this as we prepare and are empowered and fired up for the 2018 midterm elections and the 2020 general election. And so when I think about this autopsy report, though I'm not a doctor, I do want to conduct this report and I want it to be focused on three particular areas. The first area is centered on elitism present within the Democratic Party, either through the behaviors of the party elite or through the policies they adopt. The second area is focused on expectations that were inflated, that brought about overconfidence and disconnect that ultimately led to the defeat. And lastly, the external factors that potentially are unquantifiable, but that help to shed some light on why Hillary Clinton experienced difficulty in solidifying um, the vote of the American people and becoming the 45th president. So again, focusing on elitism, inflated expectations, and external factors. So let's start with elitism. Within the Democratic Party, there is a big significance and a big weight placed on political elites. And that comes about through the creation of what we call superdelegates. Throughout the history of the Democratic Party, particularly from the 1960s to present, there has been this tension between the party elites, the party bosses, and the voting members of the Democratic Party. And there's been this constant tension and negotiation over who would have power and how that power would be distributed amongst the two groups. And so prior to 1970, the party bosses controlled everything. And in thesetimes.com, a website actually publishes a great overview of this tension over the last few decades. And they note how prior to 1970s, party bosses controlled everything. It came to a budding head in 1968 when Hubert Humphrey and Eugene McCarthy were both vying for the Democratic presidential nomination. Eugene McCarthy had the votes. He had won primaries. But somehow at the end of the convention, Hubert Humphrey emerged as the Democratic presidential nominee. This sparked a lot of outrage within the Democratic Party, and they all knew that more needed to be done to give more power to the people. So in 1970-1971, the McGovern-Fraser Committee or commission convened, and they basically implemented new reforms, stripping power from the party elites and giving it to the people. So under this new framework, when candidates are running in primaries, the hope is that when the delegates get to the convention, their vote spread will be reflective of the proportion of the vote received by each um, candidate for the nomination. And that way it will be a fair process. More power will be given to the people in selecting their nominee. And the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, would now go from having all of this power to now serving as just a symbolic institution that facilitated the selection of the presidential nominee, which was now wholly um, decided and selected by the people. And so in 1970s, the this practice and these reforms are being rolled out. 
You have a big election in 1972 where George McGovern, the Democrat who's the presidential nominee for that party, is running against incumbent President Richard Nixon. And people are saying, let's test out this new framework, these new reforms. The people have selected George McGovern as the nominee. Let's see how he does in the general election. And in the 1972 election, George McGovern gets smoked. And the party elite, they're looking like, oh my gosh, we gave this power to the people. They chose this leader who was incapable of winning. This guy lost 49 states. Something's wrong. But this action didn't bring about um, decisive uh turnaround of, of the practice and the forms remained in place. And so in 1980, you have another critical high stakes election where the incumbent president at the time, Jimmy Carter, is running for re-election in 1980 against Ronald Reagan. And at the end of that election, he loses by 10 percentage points and Ronald, Wa- Ronald Reagan wins and unseats Jimmy Carter. And at this point, the Democratic Party elites are fed up. They're saying, we adopted this new policy. We gave more people more power, and our nominee is not viable in the general election. We have to start peeling some of that power away from the people and giving it back to the party elites. And that's where, after the 1981 Hunt Commission, we see the creation of superdelegates. And superdelegates now have a big impact on the Democratic Party and the selection of their presidential nominee. As of the 2016 election, there are about 712 superdelegates, accounting for about 14% of the total delegates. So this small group of political elites actually have a big say in impacting and determining who becomes the presidential nominee. And to see the extent of their power, it's important to look at how this played out in the 2016 election. Howard Dean was the former governor of Vermont. Bernie Sanders in the primary won Vermont by a landslide, but Howard Dean, one of the superdelegates from that state, refused to pledge his support for Bernie Sanders. And someone called him out on Twitter about this, and he responded saying, superdelegates don't represent the people. I'll do what I think is right for the country. And here you have a prime example of just how powerful these superdelegates are and how much clout they have in the political process. And we saw that in 2016, before any votes were cast in the primary, before all of the candidates had expressed interest and threw their hat in the ring, you saw Hillary Clinton with a significant portion of delegates being pledged to her prior to any contest ever starting. And these people remain adamant and and their support for Hillary Clinton, even in cases like the one in Vermont where the will of the people actually dictated that Bernie Sanders was the favorite candidate or the preferred candidate in that state, but somehow the superdelegates weren't reflecting that will. They were acting on their own behalf. And so you see over the course from the 1960s to now, this shift from party elites having all the power to the 1970s where the people have the power, back to the 1980s up to present where More of that power has been given back to the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, and the party elites. And so this helps to explain how Bernie Sanders could feel that the superdelegates and the DNC were skewing the election in favor of Hillary Clinton. You may have heard the reports about the debate schedule that was hosting debates at random times, right at the end of holiday weekends, or right next to big sporting events when they knew that the turnout wouldn't be as high as it normally would be, and where Bernie Sanders felt that his message couldn't get out to people on a national platform. You also have WikiLeaks highlighting how the DNC and Debbie Wasserman Schultz and high-level staffers tried to discredit, derail, and delegitimize the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. 
And so you see how this powerful DNC, these powerful superdelegates, these political elites actually tried to have their way in the electoral process, and it actually did more harm than good. We actually left the primary cycle with less unity, and we weren't on one accord with respect to the direction of the country. And instead, many Democrats, Bernie supporters, felt in particular that their voices weren't heard, that they tried to be sort of derailed and delegitimized from the start. And so these political elites, I would argue, played a big part in setting a negative tone for the general election where there wasn't as unified of a party as it could be. And this ultimately affected the enthusiasm and the excitement and the rallying cry that was so desperately needed in the 2016 election. But beyond the political elites having an impact on the election, it's also important to realize how the Democratic Party has practiced elitism in its newfound policy preferences. So since Jimmy Carter and more so under Bill Clinton, we see the Democratic Party adopt what is termed neoliberalism. And it's basically this attempt by the Democratic Party leadership to broaden the umbrella of the Democratic tent, to try to cozy up to the rich, the wealthy, and the powerful, and to try to bring them into the Democratic Party. And the danger and difficulty with this approach is that it creates a policy platform that's inconsistent and that's incompatible. You can't, on the one hand, try to say that you're the party of the working class, that you care about working people, that you care about unionized labor, and then on the other hand, try to acquiesce to the will of the wealthy in this country by supporting things like deregulation of the financial industry, privatization of different programs, austerity and budget cuts, and free corporate global trade to help support big business. You just can't have it both ways. And we saw a Democratic Party that tried to adopt neoliberal policies while also trying to be for the working class, which ultimately proved to be impossible. And the effects of neoliberalism are apparent even in the presidency of Bill Clinton. After all, he's destroyed and gutted uh, major aspects of welfare, which leads to that um, austerity that takes place under neoliberalism. He introduced NAFTA, the North America Free Trade Agreement, which again supports big, big business with free globalized trade, reduction of wages, uh, easy movement of capital uh, and human labor, uh, which uh, hurts and harms people in the Rust Belt. And you also have deregulation. You know, it was Clinton who deregulated the financial sector, which many people argue laid the foundation for the 2008 crash that we all witnessed and experienced. And so all in all, the political elites um, had their sway on the election, which did some harm. And this neoliberal policy platform, which tried to acquiesce to the wealthy, actually um, created a disconnect between the Democratic Party and the working class and severely impacted the views and perceptions of white working class voters in swing states who flipped for Trump and who allowed him to win states like uh, Michigan in the general election. So beyond elitism that's practiced within the political Democratic Party and also within their policy proposals, it's also important to highlight how expectations were so inflated throughout this process. I was at a talk this past week where they were talking about how people misread the models. Some models said that Hillary Clinton had a 70% chance of winning and Donald Trump had a 30% chance of winning. And this led people to incorrectly assume that there was this binary that was created that 70% meant that Hillary Clinton was definitely going to win, 30% meant that uh, Donald Trump was definitely going to lose. And that's actually not the case. In probability, 70% are very great odds, but 30% odds are not too shabby either. So if you tell someone that they had a one in three chance of winning something, that's not as impossible as the news media and others tried to make it seem. And I think that that led to 
the Democratic Party and the leadership and the ticket to sort of go in with inflated expectations of how well they were going to be uh, produced some overconfidence that ultimately affected their strategy. You had, in essence, a Democratic Party backed by political elites who sent a very vulnerable candidate into the general election, a very vulnerable candidate who had high unfavorables, high untrustworthiness numbers, who was adopting neoliberal policies, and who was being placed into a general election that demanded change, that demanded radical reforms, and that demanded someone who was going to fight passionately for the working class. And so that was the first disconnect with respect to the election. But then throughout the electoral process and the campaign, you see these inflated expectations impact how the Democrats campaign and how they sort of work to secure the presidency. So with respect to the campaign, we saw the Democrats rely on simply judging uh, Trump's temperament and his horrendous and horrific comments as a way to disqualify him for being president of the United States. And while this was effective and it needed to be done because some of the things he said you know, were outlandish, more also needed to be done on top of that. So while also talking about how Trump was unfit for office, the left also should have prioritized creating a new alternative vision and narrative for working class people in America that would galvanize support. They simply didn't do that. They resorted to simply attacking Trump without providing that clear, concise message to the people. These inflated expectations also impact the location strategy. Hillary Clinton never stepped foot in Wisconsin once during the general election. She thought that she was safe there. We talked about there being a blue wall. There was also a report by Politico that noted that the Service Employees International Union, uh, SEIU, actually noted that more resource needed to be pushed into Michigan, where they were hearing rumblings that some disaffected Democrats were potentially flipping to Trump, or the working class was finding um, some resonating points in, in Trump's argument. And so they tried to send organizers to Michigan to shore up that support. Uh, but the Hillary Clinton camp in Brooklyn basically said, no, our models, our expectations show that we have a five-point lead in Michigan. Keep focusing on Iowa. We know we possibly can't win Iowa, but if we focus on Iowa, we may lure Donald Trump to spend time there and ultimately impact his ability to gain ground in other states. And so that was the philosophy. Don't go to Michigan. They turned a bus around that was heading to Michigan based on this political report because they thought they had a five-point lead when they ultimately ended up losing Michigan by a little over 10,000 votes. So you see how these inflated expectations affected the campaign strategy and location strategy, which helps to explain the loss. And lastly, those external factors. So we have the FBI director's letter to Congress reopening the investigation into the email server scandal. That, Hillary Clinton argues, is what cost her the election. You have Russian hacking and WikiLeaks, which is releasing you know, detailed email accounts um, about personal information that ultimately confirms people's perceptions about the DNC and about Hillary Clinton and her camp. And then you have gender. I was watching a show on CNN called The Messy Truth, hosted by Van Jones. He's basically going around the country talking to people about the election. And he's talking to a group of women in Detroit, and they're talking about why they don't think you know Hillary Clinton won. And one woman actually responds by saying, you know what? I don't think the nation was ready for a woman president. I think that women are too emotional to serve as president, and I think that's why she lost. So from that perspective, we have also external factors, whether it be the Comey letter from the FBI to Congress, uh, whether it be Russian hacking and WikiLeaks, and also gender. These things definitely had an impact, but we can't really quantify to which extent. And so it's in this way that I argue that elitism uh, through 
giving a lot of power to political elites and through prioritizing policy preferences of the wealthy elite in society uh, that the Democratic Party lost touch. It's through these inflated expectations, through polling and modeling, and an inability to correctly understand, you know, how probability can actually tell a different story than this binary that we try to create where 70% is guaranteed to win, which is not always true, and where 30% is guaranteed a loss, which is not always the case, you know, in that Donald Trump with a 30% probability of winning actually went on to go and, and, and take the presidency. And then lastly, with external factors that we can't quantify that impact how the Democratic ticket was perceived and their potential to really be successful throughout the campaign. So that's my view. I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Am I over-exaggerating certain aspects of it? Am I missing out or leaving out certain key parts that may explain the loss? How do you view this analysis? What would you add? And more importantly, where do you think the Democrats go from here as they try to win back Senate seats in 2018, as they try to win back the White House in 2020? We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can comment on this podcast episode below. You can visit therileyrant.com to send us a message. I hope that you will take my advice early on in this podcast where I encourage you to subscribe and like and comment because I want to hear your perspectives. Thank you once again for tuning into The Riley Rant. Remember, if it's Sunday, it's time to rant. If it's Sunday, it's The Riley Rant.